You're listening to The Luxury Item, the podcast on the business of luxury and the people and companies that are shaping the future of the luxury industry. Here's your host, Scott Kerr. Swiss watchmaking is an industry steeped in history and tradition. With names like Piaget, Patek Philippe, Rolex, Audemars Piguet, Vacheron Constantin, and others. There's also a family-run Swiss luxury watchmaker that is somewhat of a secret to the world, but has made a remarkable rise to one of the darlings of independent watchmaking. That company is H. Moser AC. This entrepreneurial brand has roots dating back to 1828, but current production that dates back only a decade when it was acquired in 2012 by the Melan family, whose history in the watch industry goes back several generations. My guest today on The Luxury Item is Edouard Melan, CEO of H. Moser AC. Before starting as CEO of Moser in 2013, Edouard was involved in the watchmaking world from a young age, through his family and in leadership roles at high-end watch brands. At Moser, he has taken a clear and decisive stance in the watch industry with an original approach combining traditional haute horlogerie, provocative design, and disruptive marketing initiatives. Welcome to the luxury item, Edouard. Thank you. Pleasure to be here with you. Thank you for joining me and taking some time out. H. Moser and Company is a family-run entrepreneurial brand whose roots date back to 1828, but current production dates back a decade when your family company, MELB Holding, rescued it in 2012 after the previous owners kind of ran at some quality and financial issues. What do you and your family see in the Moser brand that you felt was worth giving it a second chance? Where was the potential? Um, there were many aspects that we actually uh, that really resonated with with us. I mean, we are a family that I mean, we grew up in the I grew up in the in the watch industry. My father was in the industry, and our ancestors as well. So we are somebody who uh, we're a family who likes you know, tradition. We like uh, high end finishing, autologie. So when we came and, and discovered um, Moser, we we saw this amazing manufacturer. Everything under one roof. At that time, about 70 people doing a lot of the elements that actually creates a, a beautiful watch. And it's quite rare in, the, in, in our industry nowadays, and uh, even more so at, at that time. Then we, we saw the, the history, great history in the region of Schaffhausen, around the world, a beautiful museum, um, a family still involved, um, a very entrepreneurial spirit across the different era of the brand. Uh, and we saw the products. Uh, my predecessors, yes, they run into quality issues, reliability issues, a lot of financial issues. But what they did extremely well was to create amazing products, and mm-hmm. um, and that's not easy to be honest. And I uh, and I and I know that because it's my everyday job. Uh, but uh, at that time, they had amazing products like the Perpetual Calendar, uh, and we all said, "Well, a movement like that is probably one of the best in the market." Okay, it's not yet fully reliable, but you know, who knows? Maybe we have enough experience to, to make it reliable and build something on top of it. So yeah, these were, I would say, the main things that really resonated to us. And you hold a degree in engineering and an MBA from Wharton. And before joining Moser, you had said you already had a kind of a track record in the watch industry. When you took over as CEO of Moser in 2013, what was the core strategy you had in mind for revitalizing the Moser brand for more of a modern world and a digital audience? To be honest, in 2013, I had, I had no clue. I, I think the main focus at that point was saving. So I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do in terms of positioning, in terms of identity, in terms of products. It was more like, 
how do we cut the bleeding? How do we get the, the base the base right? Um, and then so that we can build on, on top of it. So the first months was really about re-engineering, uh, increasing efficiencies, selling assets, uh, trying to find the core that we wanted to keep and get rid of the, of the rest. So that was the difficult part, I would say, uh, emotionally. And then the, the more interesting or more fun part was really to, um, to discover what is the vision for this brand? What do we want to do? And as you said, we wanted to bring this modern touch. And probably, we, probably I, I, we, I mean, when I look back at the, the presentations I did to the board and, and my partners at that time, it, it was already like trying to rejuvenate, bring energy, bring um, modernity to, to the brand. But I didn't know how. I remember symbolizing that with a fresh green apple and saying, you know, I want Moser to be that fresh green apple and mm -hmm. and uh and then we tried things we um we i mean my you said i had experience in the watch industry not a lot but a little bit by um being in the in the sales um side of the business in asia for a few years but also by creating a, a startup or a venture with uh with some friends um in 2008 which unfortunately failed uh but it was very um interesting to uh as a learning process and right. uh, and I learned, you know, to push the boundaries, be creative, manage cash and those kind of things. So, um, yeah, at that point, it was um, about, you know, when you don't have resources or financial resources, then you have to use all other kind of resources. And ours were, were leading to creativity. And then yeah, we tried things and many things worked to some extent. And Moser has gained this reputation of being something of an industry, I'll call it a rebel with a cause, stirring up controversy with some <laughs> concepts, stirring, stirring up controversy with some of your concepts and designs. You know, you created the Swiss Alp watch, was, which was a subversive dig at the Apple watch, the Swiss Mad watch, which was made from real Swiss cheese and tended to kind of stir debate about the whole Swiss made label and the Swiss icons watch which parodied the incrementalism of much of Swiss watch design overall. While you keep expanding your range of traditional luxury timepieces, you're also making these kind of provocative, humorous, and often controversial timepieces. This offbeat strategy, tell, tell me what the thinking is there, and do you think it's sustainable? I mean, as I said, you know, I grew up in the traditional watchmaking, and there are certain values that are important to me and to us as a, as a team and a family. And we wanted, uh, in a way, to, to have a discussion about it. So when everybody was asking us about, you know, what's the future of the traditional Swiss watchmaking when everybody is, uh, is now looking at connected watches, well, our reaction was to create the Swiss watch and, and to talk about it and, and be part of the story and express our view on that. When you don't have marketing budget, the best way to, to I believe, to, um, to stand out and, and have a, a discussion with bigger uh, brands or bigger entities is by uh, using this kind of viral symbolism provocation uh, with, a, with a touch of humor that, that belongs to us. It's kind of our way to do it, but there are probably many ways to do it. So I think the, the core of it was really for us to express an idea, express a, an opinion, or express or show something we work, we're working on. Uh, if we look at the latest concepts we've done, like the Blacker Than Black, which is about smart materials, etc. So for us, it was really about expression. And when you say, um, I mean, uh, we some people said we you, we were the, the mavericks or you know we were the rebels. Yes, in a way, but I, for me, it was more of a, an activist uh, approach in really trying to communicate something. It was not just trying to be there in the spotlight for, for, uh, for a buzz, to create a buzz. It was really about communicating something, communicating about our values, create this discussion. I think we, 
it, it became kind of a tradition. We had a lot of ideas, a lot of things we wanted to, uh, to talk about. And we, we found this formula, which was let's launch something crazy, a unique piece just before the big fair, like two or three days before, expose it during the fair. Everybody's going to talk about this, this subject. They will come and see, it, see us because if I just launch another three hands watch, that, who cares? There are tons of them out there. So let's have something that is way beyond that, that really interests people. The press, because they want to have interesting subjects. There's the, the beautiful or crazy product that we can take pictures of. But also the, the, the customers, they, they go in those fairs, not just to see like whatever, all the, the products they will anyway see in, a, in the stores a few weeks or months or years later. They want to see the, the incredible. And, and in a way, those kind of products were those incredible concepts that... Traditionally, you see those kind of things in the car industry, which are those concept cars that you never see on the roads. You only see them in the in the fair as well. This this is kind of a mix of those kind of things. You know, is there any concern that these attention getting buzzed around some of these more satirical pieces uh, and rebellious marketing tactics will dilute the bigger brand story? For some people, yes. Uh, but at the same at the same time, most of the people would probably have never heard of Mozart. So for right. me, I see it as if the people are interested enough, they will look at it as a, as a small window into our world. They will understand the message behind, which is actually linked to the bigger picture, and they will discover the bigger picture. But yes, if it's somebody who look, goes on Instagram, sees the H. Moser post with a cheese watch, they scare, they're, not, they're gonna say, well, this is ugly and stupid. But if they go in there, read, read the story, go on our website and discover, you know, why we, did we do that? We, we wanted to know to express our differences in terms of, you know, most of those Swiss-made brands are just 50 and then 60% uh, added value uh, made in Switzerland. For us, it's 100%. The reason why we wanted to step away from the, the, the Swiss-made, and we made a statement about it. And uh, those people, they are our biggest followers today. But yes, there are some people who thought we were like just clowns of the industry, but who cares? I mean, for me, I'm, I'm producing 2,000 watches a year. I probably wouldn't have been able to, to sell them as we do right now if we were not standing out and expressing our vision. People love and understand Mozo. But if you stay and just say, you know, we are 1800, we are a brand from 1828, made in Switzerland, very high-end watches, who gives... I mean, who cares? Yeah. Right, right, right. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's a hundred of them and they're probably, you know, better known than us because they have huge marketing budgets. So go and buy them. If you want something different, opinionated with great craftsmanship, with amazing people behind those amazing watchmakers from Schaffhausen, then you can be interested in Mosul. And you said you created about 2000 watches a year. Do you plan on sticking with that number for a while? You know, we, as I said in the beginning, we're very integrated, and which is great because you control a lot of what you do, but it's a nightmare when you want to grow because uh, it's not just by adding a watchmaker, then you're going to create more, produce more watches. You need to, right. to, to grow the entire supply chain. And, uh, and that starts for us with the hairsprings. So yeah, there's a lot of steps to, uh, to where we need to scale up in order to scale up the brand. So we don't want to stay at 2000. We want to grow slowly. I think it's important for a brand to, to expand, to grow not only um, because it creates more dynamic in the market and also uh, bring money so that you can invest in new project and, and, um, and, uh, and innovation, etc. But also it's important for us to, to have power because we are, when you're small, you are very, um, very vulnerable uh, towards the retailers, towards the, the big groups. They're all fighting for more space, for more margin, etc. So it's important for us to be a, a healthy growing brand. And what is the biggest market now for Moser? 
US and uh, Greater China are probably the, the biggest at the moment. Uh, US has grown tremendously in the last, uh, say, five years. Um, we've, we've done a lot of good work, I think, there and getting the, the name out there. Good products. Now we open the subsidiary with good people that uh, that support us. We have a great network, and I think um, you know it's a market where also the fact that suddenly the prices of Moser watches in the secondary market have have jumped uh, way above retail is uh, is we see in the U.S. is a very important uh, parameter when people decide to to purchase watches. So it's probably why there, there was a strong acceleration there. And how much of your business is brick and mortar? Ninety percent. You know, you said in an interview that you're trying to make an emotional link with customers. And you said, we do that through transparency and honesty, but also by being provocative. So what type of customer, their mindset sort of embraces this Moser defiant provocative brand positioning? It doesn't seem it's for everybody. It's a certain type of person, it sounds yeah. like. For me, it's really like this kind of entrepreneurs, like very self-confident confident people, um, you know, they they confident in themselves. They don't care about what people think, what people like. They don't have to have the same as everybody else. I mean, most of watches, you don't even have the, the, the logo on it. So you better know what's in there and feel comfortable comfortable telling people why you bought a, a watch with no logo, no indexes, no, I mean, it's different, right? So it's interesting to see those characters and a lot of people got to know each other through Moser. And, uh, and yeah, it's not a watch for everybody. And we don't want to be a, a watch or a brand for everybody. Again, if we are too democratic, then there are bigger brands out there that, that you know, people, if they want the same watch as everybody else, then go and buy those watches. We are creating pieces of art that kind of, you know, push the boundaries of creativity in watchmaking while staying true to traditional watchmaking. And that's not for everybody, but those very, you know, I mean, it doesn't mean you have to build your own company and be a successful entrepreneur, but it's more this mindset about, you know, not really caring about what others thinks and really appreciating and being confident about I buy this because I understand the intrinsic value. I like what's behind it. And I don't care if people don't understand it. You know, thinking about Moser's cheeky spin on the iconic Apple watch design, the younger generation who grew up telling the time from their phones have suddenly gotten into the habit of wearing a wristwatch. And now some of them have become, you know, crypto millionaires and they're excited to move into more prestigious mechanical timepieces. Why do you think millennials have all of a sudden have become luxury analog watch buyers? I think it's a process. It's always been there. I mean, at some point, I mean, you you start, I think you need to be part of a group and then you need to get out of the group. And I think uh, as they, as people grow and get, you know, they, they, the, the smartwatches have colonized the, the wrist of, of younger customers. And then as they grow, but they don't want to have the same watch as all the others. And that, that's why also Moser is very popular in that segment. It's, I think that's what we offer: something different, unique. That is that is you, and 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 this provocation and this entrepreneurial spirit is very millennial in a way. And um, and we see yes more and more. And they, you know, of course, they made uh, uh, for some of them a lot of money through crypto and the metaverse, etc. And this, they have a different way of of, of thinking. But uh, yeah, definitely a huge market and growing and growing. Yeah, I was going to ask you: Are you finding more younger oh, yeah. adult, adults are discovering Moser? Definitely. I think, uh, well, our communication, I mean, the, the, the way we, we treat social media, the way we engage customers, the way the content we create is definitely appealing to a younger uh, generation, our younger crowd in comparison probably to more traditional brands. I think the average age of people since I took over of owners of Moser has probably dropped by about 20 years. So, um, mm. yeah, it's pretty it's pretty interesting because obviously this is the, the next generation and, it's, and there are more and more. And then we... We're slowly talking about uh, Generation Z as well. And, uh, you know, when you uh, generation, the older um, 
um, people in the Generation Z and now have the means to, to buy watches as well. And uh, they think also differently from, from the millennials. So I think there's also a lot of potential there. How do you use social media to tell your story to these young collectors? What, the way we try is really to think about it as a dialogue. It's really try to engage people uh, uh, in, a, in the discussion, answer. I try to be as connected as possible with them. Um, we've, we're very uh, active on traditional social media like Instagram, Facebook. Um, we're not yet there with uh, you know going into the... TikTok? The TikTok and even like uh, in the metaverse and right. uh, you know virtual and versus digital, but uh, but we're working on it. And I think there's there's a lot of things we can do there. Um, but for me, really, the key is the human dimension. It's trying to create interesting content and and have a discussion. It's not about just posting and showing. It's about talking and, and exchanging with those people. The pandemic and the ensuing consequences from factory and store closures hit Swiss watch sales in 2020, forcing brands to boost their often tiny online business and generally rethink their digital activities. How did it impact your business? For years, we were thinking, you know, how do we, uh, should we sell online? Is it, is it, you know, are people ready to buy more the watches? Our average price, you know, we, yes, we start with 13,000 US dollars, but the average is around 40. So how much are we ready to spend online? We had no clue and we didn't, you know, to pay for um, uh, market studies, etc. So I think it was March 13 uh, or March 16 in Switzerland, 2020, when everything got closed. We, I think 95% of our doors were closed around the world. And I, I talked to my team and said, well, <laughs> now we have no choice. Let's go for it. So yeah. April 2nd, we opened our, our um, online uh, platform. I think two days later, our first, we sold the first tourbillon. I think we started with like a, close to 80,000 US dollar watch, uh, sold to a gentleman in the US who um, had never had a Moser watch on his wrist. And then, well, and then boom, it, it started. Now we have to limit to 10% of our production, but uh, we could sell way more than that. But um, yeah, it's it's completely changed our business model. It revolutionized the way we, we now uh, think. It, it obviously makes the brand much, much more powerful towards our retailers. And um, I, was, I make always the comparison with... Uh, uh, a brand like Richamil, when I, I was very close to, to Richamil, we worked together many years ago. He was telling mm -hmm. me how when he started in the early 20s, 2000, uh, in early 2000, they had a lot of, um, uh, he, he started selling direct. He had to invest in a lot of uh, boutiques, which is, you know, requires a lot of CapEx and fixed costs, etc. Here, it's much easier for us. It's, you have access to the customers, you have access to data. It's so much easier than that time. I think we, it's, it's, and, and I think that's why independent brands are now um, uh, surging and becoming more and more important in our industry is because it's, it's kind of easier than it was probably for the generation before us. Um, now we need to still take the right strategic decisions, but I think we, we are at the beginning of the golden age for independent brands. After two years of the pandemic-related disruption, the luxury watch world recently descended on Geneva to confer on the latest neurological trends and most exciting timepieces at the annual Watches and Wonders trade show. Did it feel like a school reunion seeing your watchmaking industry colleagues yeah. again in person? Yes. It was really like, uh, you know, people, uh, nobody was wearing masks. I think everybody got the COVID. Um, <laughs> everybody's like hugging and they were like, I mean, this uh, amazing energy, at least in the beginning until people started getting, um, being sick. I, I had it before, so it was quite easy for me, but um, no, definitely a lot of energy a lot of enthusiasm. Um, it, I, for me, I, I said, really, you know, 
we can do a lot digitally. We can connect with people around the world. We can train hundreds of people in one day, which is which requires usually weeks. Uh, but building relationship, maintaining relationship, um, you cannot do that online. And uh, I think for a few two years without seeing each other is okay if you have those if you have been you know traveling for years and and build those relationships over time. But eventually you have to meet again. You're all for the physical trade shows. I think we need a good mix. I think we need to be more pragmatic than before. It used to be like those big, very fancy, super expensive shows where you just, you know, everybody trying to show this, its muscles and who is the biggest and and uh, big parties, etc. I don't think you need that. I think, uh, again, it's about meeting people, having good interactions, think strategically, build relationships. And, and for that, you don't need to be spending millions on champagne and, and, and crazy parties. One of the timepieces you presented at Watches and Wonders was the Streamliner chronograph in a blacker than black version, as it's been dubbed. The entire watch is covered with the blackest substance ever produced artificially from its dial to its case right down to its integrated bracelet. How did the idea for the blacker than black Streamliner come about? It's part of the series of those crazy concepts you were talking about. You know, we started with the, the Swiss Alp watch. We had the Swiss Mad watch, the Swiss Icons watch, the Mosa Nature watch. We did a collaboration with MBNF, which was about uh, collaboration. That was the topic that was supposed to be in 2020. 2021, there was no, um, no shows. Um, but in 2022, for us, it was about expressing a little bit the future of innovation in our industry. I think there's, for years, we've seen a lot of, you know, watches in, in steel, in gold in titanium and maybe carbon if you got a little bit uh, innovative but i think there's a lot coming now with smart materials and functional materials and we wanted to express that we're working on different projects there and uh, again those concepts are for us a way to express a little bit of future show something a little bit crazy for people who actually pay uh, quite a lot of money to go to those shows and want something you know interesting to to see and not just the the, the next new uh, three hands watch from the big brand so the idea there was really to express that and, and show something uh, that they would probably never see again. And your timepieces are known for its distinctive designs and many executives will see a design, approve it or give notes and that's it. How early are you personally involved in the design process? Oh, right at the beginning. I mean, it's important to, we have a, a very small core team discussing design and that includes Bertrand, my, my brother, the head of production, Maurizio and the head of sales, Nicholas and myself. In the beginning I was, Pretty much doing a lot myself because I think it's important to define the, the codes, both what I call the uh, the functional design codes and the aesthetical aesthetical design codes. And uh, once we all agreed on those, we started really working well together. And I think everybody brings ideas about what we need, how to complement. We have a very, I mean, well, if I can say it this way, but very matricial matrix uh, mm-hmm. approach where you know we have four collections, our four pillar, which are the um, Endeavor, Pioneer, Heritage, and, and Streamliner, and we have a, a different families of, of movements. And then it's a lot about combining and 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 thinking what what is the next movement we need, we need to expand, um, uh, depending on you know do we want to continue to 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 show our skills in autologically by creating something really in the brand, or do we need to 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 you know, have bring something more in the entry level that would still be very Moser and, and functional, etc. So we have those kind of discussions, and then the more the, the last discussions are usually about materials and colors. In 2019, you released the one-off, the Moser Nature Watch, made up entirely of Swiss plants, symbolizing really the brand's commitment to its green operations and using fair trade materials. Well, that's really a noble symbol of your commitment to the environment sustainability. What real actions is Moser doing to back that up? 
it was it was not only about the green aspects, really about corporate social responsibility, and and that in, in, in incorporates a lot of things. It's about how you know how do you check where the money is coming from, uh, how do you source your material, how do you treat your employees, uh, how do you manage data, and all those things. So for us, it was really about talking about corporate social responsibility. Yes, we use fair trade uh, gold. Yes, we uh, and we pay more for for that. Yes, we try to reduce the impact that we have. Uh, through you know the way we travel, the way, what kind of cars we use, the kind of even the kind of water we drink at the manufacturer, how we compensate uh, the car, our carbon footprint, what kind of foundations do we support, like uh, room to read, with, where, where we, with which we we, we work most, um, what kind of gift do we get do we give to our customers or not don't not give to our customers or, or guests. All those kind of things, and and uh, it started with our RJC uh, certification, which is the um, uh, jewelry conceal. It's kind of a, a, of a label for corporate social responsibility in our industry, and this is a two years uh, process to get certified. We probably the smaller brand certified, and uh, and it, and it looks really in all your processes and how you can improve and be better. So yes, quite a lot of things that we do in the in the background, and um, and not just you know creating a, a recycled plastic bracelet. You know, demand for high-end watches exploded during the COVID-19 pandemic, but the big four watch brands have been holding firm on the limited production runs, sending demand for the hottest watches far outstripping supply. And waiting lists have gotten longer and prices on the secondhand market are skyrocketing. Has the scarcity of these heavy hitters pushed new collectors to discover indie brands like Moser for the first time? As much as a lot of people don't want to admit, I think definitely i think the people were looking for the next thing but not only that i think once i, I believe our products are amazing uh and i think if people look in the details they see there's way more value in those kind of products small quantities amazing craftsmanship uh we probably don't make the same margin as those big brands but um but because we invest a lot in the, in, in the products and we don't have the scale but it's like art i think we are the artists of the of this industry and uh, and i think more and more people discover that and they realize that um yeah, there's a lot of potential in discovering those those watches. I think a lot of people have also already those kind of difficult to get watches because all those big collectors eventually they get them. It's it's yeah. It's, I think there was a bit of a social media. There is a bit of a social media effect where everybody wants to say the same watches, but a lot of people still have them. And uh, and in the end, they want the next one. What is the next thing? And I and I think that that drove to the FP Journe, the uh, MBNF, or the Moser of this world. The stellar reputation enjoyed by Swiss watchmakers directly translates to a premium and a willingness by consumers to pay more for those products as a result of the coveted geographical indication. You've been very outspoken about the requirements to earn the Swiss-made label. Current legislation is at least 60, I think it's 60% of the value of the components within a quote-unquote Swiss-made watch will have to be of Swiss origin in order to be considered eligible. That means the other parts can come from China or some other countries. You obviously want higher than 60%. As a smaller independent Swiss brand, you're essentially penalized because you genuinely create just about everything in-house for whom costs are higher. It, when it says 60% of the value, it's even possible, for example, some some, some brands do that. You, you have the, the parts made in China or wherever, uh, brought to Switzerland, finished in Switzerland, and just because the salaries are so high for, for skilled people, you just you know have somebody touch the, those parts, it's already uh, enough to... Uh, 
to get to those 60%. I think one of the new rules that was established back then, I think 2017, um, is about also the origin of the development of the movements, for example, they have to be developed in, in Switzerland. But most of those movements that those brands are using date back from the 70s. So they, they, they already amortized and everything. But that's true. But for us, yes, we are 100%. And I think um, today you can, you can create amazing watches and still be competitive while being 100% Swiss. It's always a question about trying to maximize uh, profit, which luckily when you're not uh, you know, a traded company and just a family business, uh, but sufficiently uh, profitable uh, to, to, to live, uh, then you don't have to maximize this. And, uh, and therefore your priority is more in, in making amazing products and not maximize profit. How do your fellow Swiss brands feel? Are there some that are on the same boat as you that would love to I think see most of, I think most of the independents uh, are, are, are similar and, and probably a few of those very, very big, you know, the, the Patek uh, of, of these worlds, uh, they, they probably are similar to us. Um, they think similarly because 100% of what they do is Swiss made. And we see it. Some of the suppliers come to us and they say, you know, some of the brands, it's like us, it's it has to be made in 100% in Swiss and they need to certify it. But they have other clients, they said, I buy from you, I don't care where you produce. So obviously, uh, just make sure you give me the best price. And a lot of those suppliers also source from, uh, from China. So um, it really depends on the, on the brand. But to be honest, I think independence plus the very uh, big uh, established brands uh, are not cheating the system. Or it's not cheating. It's, I would say, uh, playing with the naivety or the lack of knowledge of the collectors. You know, there's still a sense of that the pre-owned and particularly gray markets watch sale are viewed in Switzerland as a CD byproduct rather than a welcome opportunity to grow the overall industry. What are your thoughts? I think that's wrong. I think uh, when it, it is a big market and it's a growing market. And I do believe that brands have a responsibility in, in creating and making sure that, you know, we, we, we protect or we maintain the value of what we're selling and we provide the right level of service and giving a certain liquidity in the market for customers who bought your watch today but might want to sell it tomorrow for whatever the reason is part of our responsibility. So I, don't, I think, I, I don't understand why certain brands try to fight um, the secondary market. I believe we need to work with them, and we, which we do. We play with the pure players and in the sense that we provide them a lot of information when they need, and, and if they need a service, we will be there to, to help them. It's a market. If you try to fight it, it's just too big for you. I think it's better to try to, to make the best out of it by providing the service. At the end of the day, it's for the best of the for the end customer. Of course, the, the risk is manipulation, but you know, at our scale, it's very difficult to, uh, to influence anything. But I can imagine that some big brands can, if they want, they could manipulate the market by boosting the prices in, uh, in ways or others. But uh, yeah, that's a different story. And it's clear that the interest in watches has reached an all-time high. As at prices, do you think we're in a bubble right now? I don't know. I hope not. <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> I knew I was going to knew you were going to answer that. Right. I hope not. No, but they, I mean that we are in a in a, we we might be very high in the cycle. There's always cycles. Uh, but look at art. Art as I mean, you could think there's been bubbles in art. I think we watches are becoming. I mean, the people start to think about watches like they think of art or coll um, collector's cars. You don't, you don't say it's a secondary, it's a, a secondhand Ferrari. It's a Ferrari from 64. That's the way, the value is even higher. But in right. watches for many years, it was a secondary. So people were thinking that has less value. But I think that is changing. 
and it changed in art and it changed in the in the, in well art a long time ago you, you don't treat it's not a secondhand picasso it's a picasso right so i think and in cars it changed after art and i think it's changing in watches so i don't think there's going to be a, the way back that the prices might go down a little bit that we have uh, hit a, a top at some point Yes, for sure. But that it's not, it's not that it goes back up later, for sure as well. I think what we produce is very limited. The demand is increasing. The, the amount of wealth is, is there. Maybe there's going to be a crash in the in, in the financial uh, um, world or the economical world, uh, which has a negative impact on on the sales of watches for sure. But we had we had the quartz crisis. We had many others, and I think uh, we will recover in that case much more quickly. Now, are we in a bubble? Uh, frankly, I have no idea. But um, but I think uh, I still believe that uh, the prices will will go higher. If it's not in the next few months, it's going to be in a, in a few years from now. Now, while you do occasionally poke fun at the Swiss watchmaking industry, when you look around, what are other watchmakers do you admire right now? For most, I like my peers in the in the among the independents. I like you know the the guys like Jouer and what they do there. The Giacrivia, uh, Recep Recepi. I like uh, the the design of of uh, of the Bethune. Um, I I I think my world is really about independent, and uh, and that's where we we collaborate. We help each other. It's really like it's 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 interesting. We I, I see independence as being kind of a category, a brand on its own. It's becoming like this. We're not competing anymore with each other because anyway, we all sold out. So it's more about this category uh, um, competing more with, with the bigger brands. So yeah, this is the inspiration, trying to learn from each other and helping each other. You were talking about the metaverse before, you know, given its century old craft, the watch industry is notoriously resistant to change and slow to react to outside developments. However, we're already seeing the watch industry experimenting with authentication, NFTs, blockchain technology, and the metaverse. How has Moser heralded the arrival of Web3? We look at it and we learn and we study and we work on projects. I think with Web3, I think the, the risk is like with Web2 is to be too early and then you know uh, damage your brand by having a crash. Uh, we were talking about value. I think there's, there's a lot of value right now and maybe the bubble might be in that in Web3 at the moment. So we have to be care careful not to be too, too early and be too opportunistic. I see a lot of the initiatives in the watch industry to be at the moment is maybe it's despite, uh, I would put aside the, the certification aspect, which I think is really uh, uh, interesting. But I think uh, there's a lot of things that I need made, like creating a, 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 a digital copy of a, of a watch, I think for me is kind of trying to surf the, the, the wave of speculation around NFTs. And I think that's very, um, um, NFT art, in, especially in art, I think it's very opportunistic, but I think there's many ways that, that, that we can work with it. And, uh, and we're definitely working on it and trying to find something that adds value to the customer that really brings something useful and not just trying to, um, to, um, to surf the wave. So my final question, Edouard, is the luxury item question, which I ask all my guests. So if you were stranded on a deserted island and you could only have one luxury item with you, what would that luxury item be? It can't be any form of air transportation, water transportation, or anything that requires mobile service. What would that one luxury item you would like to have with you? It has to be luxury, right? It cannot be. Uh... That's the name of the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it could be. Um... I think being there would be luxury because time time is luxury. And right now, as, as, as we all know, it's difficult to have a lot of time for, for ourselves. So being on that island alone, maybe taking my family with me, that would be quite luxury. So spending time on that island, 
and have uh, young kids that are growing way too fast. Um, so I think we always said with my with my my wife is you know it's been ten years of a lot of traveling. Yes, a little bit less the last two years, but being away from the family and and uh, missing on those amazing times and looking back, that's definitely. I mean, as much as I love the success we're having with Moser, and I'm super proud about it, and I think they are proud as well. I think spending time with them and, uh, and having, uh, not getting messages and, <laughs> and phone calls and, and tackling issues would be the biggest luxury. That's a great answer. Edouard Melan, CEO and owner of H. Moser & Company. Thank you so much for joining me on The Luxury Item. My pleasure. Great question. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode of The Luxury Item Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this useful and entertaining, I would be really grateful if you can share it with a friend or colleague. I would love it if you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. The Luxury Item Podcast is a production of Silvertone Consulting. I'm your host, Scott Kerr. Until next time.